Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. But it's something I've found beautiful over the years as a way of sort of marking uh, the the season and really beginning to think about the birth of Jesus and the significance of that. And so along with that, of course, is a sermon series um, to begin thinking about uh, about the birth of Jesus and, and all of it. Um, and, and of course, it's one of those uh, challenging things as a, as a preacher, these uh, series or these subjects that just happen every single year. Like you have to do Easter every year and you have to do Christmas every year. And like, how do you frame this story uh, in a fresh and new way? And, uh, and what I decided to do this year was to actually look at one of the Christmas carols that we sing fairly frequently. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by Charles Wesley in 1739. And uh, the, the hymn itself is just packed with really rich theology and, and sort of a deep, beautiful telling of the Christmas story uh, that's all tied to the scriptural text. So we can get into the Bible and look at this hymn uh, and its five verses as a framework and begin to walk through. It's an interesting one. We've sung it, you know, millions of times and you hear it in the malls even. I remember uh, hearing it. I mean, I think I've told this story before, but I'll, what the heck, I'll tell it again. But I remember, I'm kind of a Christmas guy. And as you know, once or twice, every now and then I get a little choked up. Uh, I just can be, tend to be a tad emotional, but that's okay. You guys are all living with it, rolling with it. That's good. But I remember one uh, like sweltering hot summer day, like crazy hot day, um, in, and we were visiting Niagara on the lake, and you know there's a Christmas store there? Right, the Christmas store in Niagara on the Lake. Anybody been there? And so I was at this Christmas store in Niagara on the Lake, and we're just sort of going through it, and the Christmas vibe is just settling on me. Like it's just sinking in, right? Like I'm connecting. And walk into this little room under the stairs, and there's this uh, uh, little little selection of just angel decorations and it was either Hark the Herald Angels Sing or I forget it was one of these one of these carols that we just hear at Christmas time all the time but here it was 26 28 degrees in January and I'm in July or sorry in July thank you in July and this is why we were married um, because she knows things Uh, and uh, I'm in there in in the middle of uh, July and I burst into tears like a little baby, like just all over again. It's Christmas. I'm like, in my mama's house. Jesus loves me. Um, and so we connect with these things, right? We hear them in the mall. And, uh, and they're just played so blithely. And there's a million different versions of this song, right? There's country and rap and hip-hop and everything else, choral, the whole deal, right? It's all there. Uh, but it was, it was, it's a beautiful piece. And, and I think we miss some of the, the depth of what we can we can find in some of these songs that are so thoughtfully written. So this one is written by Charles Wesley, uh, who lived from 1707 to uh, 1788, uh, the brother of John Wesley, um, wonderful uh, uh, pastor, leader. We're just going to have just have a quick look at some of the, the history uh, of him. He was born in Lincolnshire, England in 1707, so that's a little bit to the north and uh, to the east of London, sort of along the coast. Um, in, in, uh, in that area, looking out on the English Channel. I was educated at Westminster, Oxford, and uh, I think the most notable part of his uh, earliest education was from his mom. She spent six hours a day with uh, 
him and their and and their and their kids, like just teaching them. And she spoke French and Latin, and um, I think Italian and English. The four languages. I think the Italian might not be right, but so she was a really well-educated uh, woman herself, really drilling, really educating the kids, and uh, growing them up in the church and growing them up in the faith. I think they had, there were 19 children in the family, and only yeah yeah. 19 kids, think about that. Only 10 of them actually survived into adulthood. So some hard stories in there, but just an incredible family, an incredibly dedicated, passionate uh, woman. Um, and so she raised uh, these boys and, 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 and grilled them in the scriptures and in uh, the humanities, all of that. Um, and in 1727, by the time he was a little bit older and he was at Oxford University, um, he went uh, and with his brother John uh, began to start, uh, essentially start a Bible study. Um, and they were people who were trying to be really, really passionate and really, really systematic about reading the Bible. He was training really to be a minister at that point uh, in the Church of England. And uh, they were called the Holy Club. They were mockingly called the Holy Club or the Sacramentalists and mockingly called Methodists. And that's where we get Methodism from. Um, because they were very, very systematic and very uh, passionate about how they approached the studying of the scriptures. So he was ordained in 1735 and was converted to Jesus in 1738. <laughs> which is <laughs> an interesting, interesting part of the story. So he'd undergone an enormous uh, period of time uh, of ministry and uh, study and engagement in the Word and passion for the Bible that was radical and unique in his time. Uh, but he had an experience of what he called conversion or what he called uh, receiving new life uh, in 1738. And we'll tell the story of that uh, maybe at the end of the sermon. But um, that's a very interesting thought just there, isn't it? That we can go through our whole Christian lives passionately dedicated to following Jesus and learning and knowing all about him. And then have a radical experience with Jesus that changes everything, you know, in our 40s or whenever it was, right? That's just something for us to think about as we look at this, uh, at this message and think about our own lives is that uh, there might be more conversion for us yet to come. And what actually happened, uh, I think, was kind of a, a, a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, right after that, if you look at all the hymns and things that he wrote and things that John wrote, as their, their whole theology of the Holy Spirit began to shift and they began to speak about the indwelling Spirit and began to teach about the Holy Spirit in a new way. So something kind of really radical. <laughs> happening uh, there. And so in 1739, he wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which uh, was actually at that time called uh, Hymn for Christmas Day. That's just what he entitled it. He was incredibly like a prolific writer. Over the course of his life, uh, he wrote like 8,989 hymns. It just, just, you know, something to do in his spare time. <laughs> right? So just constantly writing poetry, and his father was a poet, like, so just writing, 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 writing all the time. And some of them became songs. He was a field preacher until uh, 1765, so after their conversion experience, they wanted to see uh, many other people in the Church of England uh, have an experience like that. So they just got out there in the communities and started telling the story of transformation that was happening in their own lives. Um, uh, they'd had a previous experience in missions where they'd gone to the United States uh, before their, his conversion experience, and it was a total bomb. It totally blew out. But after they'd been filled with the Spirit and had this conversion experience, they began preaching in England, and, uh, and things really grew in a, in a radical way. Uh, and he sort of retired from field preacher role uh, because of his health at around 1765 and stayed at home with his family and was a parish minister until uh, his death in 1788. 
And so that's his life. And so this first uh, song that we're this song that we're looking at, "Hark the Herald Angels Sing," it was called a hymn for Christmas Day, written in 1739. And the music for it that we now sing wasn't actually attached to the song until 1840. Um, and that was by uh, Felix Mendelssohn. And when that happened, he was right, essentially writing a cantata, uh, writing a big musical piece to commemorate uh, movable font in typesetting. And he thought, hey, I will just do this Jesus song in, in the middle of it all. And, uh, and this, so he's really commemorating and, and that the gospel can go forward in print uh, to the whole world. And he writes this beautiful uh, piece and he takes Charles... Uh, um, Wesley's piece and, and puts it into it. And that's what we're singing today. And it's had other modifications since. Here's a close-up of that first hymnal that it was in. And you can see um, it, the first lyrics were, Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. And so it was George Whitfield uh, at the sound of Wesley who just sort of changed and altered those lyrics a little bit. And you'll see that where there's S's, there are F's in some places. That's just the, the way that a long S was written in old, uh, older English. Um, so there's five verses that we're going to look at over five weeks. So, so there you go. There's your history lesson for the week. It doesn't usually happen. I hope that's okay with you guys, but I think it's good to learn these things. Um, so uh, we're going to look over five weeks. One, there's an introduction to the theme, and it's basically this idea that we are sinners, that we need to be saved, we need to be transformed, uh, that we need to be reconciled to God. Uh, the part where Jesus is born, the incarnate baby, he draws near. Uh, he offers new life, born to give them second birth. He sets us free, bruising us the serpent's head, talking about deliverance and freedom as it comes. Uh, he restores our relationship with him, reinstate us in thy love. We only really sing the first three verses. The last two verses are verses that were sort of lost, but they're in these old hymnals and they're, they're not really sung anymore. They probably weren't a part of the cantata in, 17, or in 1840, but now they're a part of... Uh, of history, and so we're going to look at them because they're theologically rich as well. And so where we have to start with all of this is we have to sing, Would You Stand? <laughs> we can't talk about this and not do it, so. And now i got to start it in the right key. <laughs> Lord have mercy. <laughs> Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Beautiful. Give yourselves a big hand. Well done. Well done. I started that barely low enough to hit the high notes at the end. So that's great. Um, and so really what we're going to focus on is this one line here uh, about God and sinners being reconciled. So uh, Wesley starts with the story. We're obviously taken into the proclamation of the angels uh, to the shepherds. And uh, what he's celebrating is this incredible idea that God and sinners uh, need to be reconciled, that we need to have uh, our, our life with God uh, uh, reconnected and remade new. So it's the question maybe to just start with, just to make it really personal for us. Um, what, what does the life of reconciliation look like? And just pause and think about this for a minute. I'm just going to give us just a second in silence to just sit with this question. If your relationship with God was perfect, 
how would your way of relating to him be different from how it is now? Think about your relationship with God, ideal relationship with God, what it could be. How's that different from how you're actually living now? No difference at all? Maybe you got it nailed. <laughs> or maybe there's something uh, there, some areas to grow. So I'm just going to take a second and, and we're just going to quiet our hearts. And uh, I'm just going to let a, few, a couple of you just share uh, a thought. So Father, we do want to just bring this all before you uh, in an evaluative way and say, uh, Lord, what do you long for? What did you die for? What do you want our relationship to be? In what ways are we unreconciled to you? And would you help us to uh, see what our relationship with you could be? Come Holy Spirit. Amen. So maybe a couple of you could just shout out, uh, what, what do you think God would want to see different in, in how you relate to him, your patterns of relating to him? Any thoughts? Amber? The alignment of my time priorities. Yeah, time priorities, Sarah? Okay. Okay, just you, so she, you're imagining a future with him where you can actually lay hands on him. And yeah, so looking towards the, the eternal possibility, absolutely. And that being, you know, a reflection of what we want to see now. Uh, who else? So I think what you're describing is just having an awareness, like sometimes we just forget that he's there and accessible, right? And that we could invite him in at any moment. We'll struggle away, like alone all the time and totally forget that we can rely on the strength of, of God. Yeah, thanks, Diane. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that was part of Charles Wesley's pre-conversion experience. We can talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah, for sure. What else? Maybe one more. Paul. Render unto God what is God's. Okay, so you're saying, uh, how are you connecting that with relationship? The idea that... Well, the idea that Caesar, you know, we coin Caesar. Okay. Nature, but we only give to Caesar what's theirs. We give to God all of our... Oh, okay, okay, right. Right, so Paul's talking about the way we give ourselves to God, right? Like we have some part of our lives that are, yeah, we give it to the practical. We give it to, you know, paying our taxes and paying the bills and doing all of that. But then, you know, there, there's a lot that of our lives that's just meant to be given to him in relationship, right? That we don't give. We, don't, we think all of our lives is our, are ours, but there's a whole pile of our lives that are meant to be given to him. Very good thought. Um, and so just another the question that sort of follows that for us is, uh, what is it that creates distance between you and God? 
just something else to reflect on. What, what creates distance between you and God? What is it, say, for, for Diane that causes her not to realize that Jesus could be present to her in the moment, or Amber that doesn't, didn't maybe see that there could be time that could be uh, given to him or rearranged, or, uh, or, or maybe some of us don't have the expectation that, you know, he'll be loving when he comes to meet with us, or that he'll care about us, or maybe we think he's, you know, distant or, or something. But what, what is it that uh, creates distance between you and God? Is it shame, or is it guilt, right? Um, is it is it our sin? And I think this is a quote from, uh, it's disputable who it's from, so I'm just going to read it. Uh, um, if we are honest, it isn't circumstance, busyness, oppression, or distraction that hampers our relationship with God. But if we boil it down, we always find that we are hindered by our own sin. Which puts uh, it all fairly squarely in our court. <laughs> <laughs> that our own uh, patterns, our own distractions, the stuff that we're running after, our own lusts and desires, whatever it is, that's the thing that's ultimately competing uh, with our relationship with God, isn't it? Right? It's, it's ultimately that, that sense that, hey, we've got our own stuff. Um, there's a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, as salt uh, flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you're deceived. Thank you for that encouraging word, Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> but isn't that the reality, right? If we take it and boil down uh, anything that's a distance between God and us, like some of it can really be like our image of God, right? It can be... Um, you know, an idea that God is, you know, a distant, angry policeman in the sky. Uh, that can be a part of what breaks down uh, our, our ability to connect with them. But very often, even behind that can be uh, some of our own, you know, our own pride, our own need to uh, perform for the policeman in the sky, uh, an unwillingness to recognize uh, that we, we need to surrender. Even if he is this great policeman in the sky, the still best response is still surrender. Right? If, even if that's who he is and we're afraid of him, it's still the right response to surrender. <laughs> right? Even if we don't like the cop who pulled me over on the way to church to, because uh, I was going a little bit fast, right? And if we didn't like that happening, that didn't happen today, but it has happened. Um, <laughs> the right thing to do is still pull over the car. But there's something in us that just doesn't want to, right? There's something in us, and we know that he's not like that. We know that he's incredibly loving and generous and, and good. So if we, if we look down to the heart of almost anything, it, it's our own desires. And so that's really what uh, Wesley is talking about as he writes his hymn, right? He's saying this is sort of a starting point for us. We are people who are separate from God. We need to be reconciled. That's the amazing thing that Jesus has done for us. And then he's going to walk us through the rest of the salvation story. Matt's going to talk about the next verse next week. Um, so I just want uh, to, to put that, clearly plant that in the scriptures. Uh, we have this incredible moment, right, where Joseph comes uh, and he's there. Uh, the angel is visiting him in a dream and he's trying to figure out what's going on here. I'm going to have a child and... Uh, 
Uh, he's like, maybe I should divorce Mary. Maybe I should, like, like this is going to be bad for her reputation, bad for my reputation. Should cut this off. And the angel is like, no, okay, we got to sort this out. Um, and says, hey, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right? Jesus means savior. He's meant to be a savior. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing that we often have to do with our friends that don't know Jesus is to make a case for why we need saving, right? We're, we're taught, I think, in our schools, we're taught in our workplace, we're taught everywhere we are that uh, sin is, uh, is kind of this outdated, outmoded concept that we don't really have to worry about. Like, you just can do your own thing. You know, truth is relative. There's no exterior standard by which you judge yourself. If it feels good to you, go ahead and do it, right? That's sort of what we're taught. But uh, the scriptures teach us that there is a standard. There is something to, uh, to look at in terms of how we manage our lives uh, relative to somebody greater than us. And we see this really clearly, which is an obvious Christmas text, Romans 3, uh, chapter 22 to 25. It's not an obvious Christmas text text, but it's really, really important uh, for this, uh, uh, this understanding. And this is Paul talking to the, the church in Rome. He says this, for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's a very familiar voice, verse to you if you've grown up in Sunday school, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Now that's a mouthful. Let's pull it apart just a little bit. Uh, first of all, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hey, guess what? We have something in common. Paul is uniting his audience, <laughs> right? That's very nice of you, Paul. Thanks for uniting us. Uh, glad to know we're all in the same boat. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, and that is true, right? If you look back at your story, um, I'm, and I, I think we sort of categorize sin as, you know, murder and adultery and all those sort of big ones. And maybe you haven't done those kind of things, but if you remember grade school and you remember how you've uh, been with friends, you remember how you've taken people um, and, and sort of pushed them down, you remember maybe being a little bit of a bully, uh, you remember what, how you acted with your siblings, you remember mouthing off to your parents, uh, disrespect and dishonor, all of those things are all part of that package of sin. We have something in us that wants to put ourselves at the center of the universe and push everybody else down, and that is ultimately sin. So that's something that we all have, um, and it's not something that we just have because uh, we all have it, uh, we all decided just to do it. I mean, we own our decisions, but there's something at work in the world that's, uh, that's bigger. Uh, we see this a little bit later as Paul's unpacking it in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So we're part of a community. Isn't that nice? <laughs> Isn't that a lovely community? <laughs> Sin entered the world through one man, and we have this story of, of Adam and Eve that is all the way from the beginning of Genesis, uh, showing us that uh, we as humans have a natural desire to take that thing, whatever that thing is that you're not supposed to have, there's something in you that wants it. Do you know that every time I go into a bank, my mind is thinking about how I could possibly rob it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. Every time I go into a bank, I'm thinking about how I could possibly rob it. Is anybody else like that, or is, really, is that just me? 
How many of you How many of you love heist movies? Does anybody love heist movies? Come on. Yeah, right? Right? Ocean's 11, whatever it is, right? Like I'm in there, I'm sitting in the chair waiting to meet with somebody. I'm standing in the line. I'm like I should have wore a hood. <laughs> you know, like, like how, how, how can I do this? Like, I could break in here after dark. Like, this is a small town. I don't think the vault is all that strong. I could drill in from the back wall. Uh, occasionally, I thought, you know what? Notre Dame is quite far away. I could call in a bomb threat at Notre Dame. All the cops go over there, and I can rob the CIBC. These thoughts occur to me. Am I the only one? <laughs> <laughs> this is being recorded. This is going to go on our podcast. Dang! <laughs> Pastor is a sinner, okay? Welcome to the club. You all have this in you. Maybe not the rubbing banks, but we intend evil in our hearts sometimes, don't we? Whatever it is for you, you sometimes intend evil in your hearts, and we carry it out. Um, and so we, we, it talks about that. Like, like, you know, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then we have this incredible thing. We all uh, are offered grace, right? We all are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Jesus. But look at this. Like, like, like Paul is putting a really fine point on it. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Right, that's a that's a phrase that's that's um, almost outmoded in some sort of contemporary theological circles. Um, the idea that um, what that word propitiation means is something that uh, takes away wrath. So that's a sacrifice that takes away wrath, wrath appeasing sacrifice. Jesus died as a wrath appeasing sacrifice for our sins. We don't like to think that God could get cranky. Do you guys like? Do you guys imagine God getting cranky? Like he's so nice, he's so sweet, sweet baby Jesus, who cursed the fig tree and who told people like they're going where there's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, sweet baby Jesus. Right, right. Like there is wrath. Like God made this incredible, beautiful, amazing world, and we've made a mess of it. Now, if Toby had Toby has a Millennium Falcon like Lego Millennium Falcon, would I experience Toby's wrath if I, let's see if it can fly, Tobes, off the back. Would I experience Toby's wrath? Yeah. Does Toby experience my wrath when he messes with my stuff? Because when you have stuff, when you make stuff, when you create stuff, you have the right to protect it and for it to right, the right for it to be what it ought to be. God created you and made you, and you've taken yourself, your life off the balcony and gone, throw it up in the air, and it gets damaged, <laughs> right? We get damaged, we get wounded, we get broken. We are broken by our sin, and God isn't happy with that. This is a reality of who God is as creator. He didn't want his creation broken. He wanted us to steward it. And, and make it more beautiful and participate with him in the garden in a way that was going to make it better and better and better. But we've made it worse and worse and worse. And we have to deal with the reality of that. And so that's what Jesus' sacrifice did, is uh, all of that wrath that we have generated is dealt with by the sacrifice of Jesus. And it says this, this next phrase, uh, this was to show God's righteousness. Right? 
So imagine that somebody that you love was, um, was raped. A daughter or a, a friend or cousin or sister or wife was raped. And imagine that the judge, you walk into the, the prison, uh, or you, so you walk into the courtroom and the judge just says, well, we're going to forgive that one. <laughs> Clunk the gavel. Does that make any sense at all to anybody? That's not what Jesus' forgiveness is. God is also a God who is just. Right? Uh, the sin that we do, uh, the evil that we do, has to be paid for. It has to be paid for. It has to be dealt with. And so what God does uh, through the death of Jesus is he takes the evil that we've done, he takes that murder, that rape, whatever it is, and he takes it and he takes the punishment for it on himself. So what the story of the gospel is, is we go into the courtroom with our sin and our brokenness and the way that we've hurt God and we come in and we are charged absolutely guilty because he knows it. He sees it. He knows the life that we've stolen from the other humans, right? And that we owe the other humans for that life that we've stolen from them in so many different ways. And, and we have to know that we have. You and I have stolen life from one another in so many different ways. And he takes the gavel that's sitting on his desk and he hits it, crack, guilty. And he takes the sentence for us. That's justice. The sin, the crime, is paid for. We don't pay for it because of what Jesus has done. We get to go free. But he pays for it in himself. That's the gospel. That's what we receive. That's what Jesus came for. Uh, Paul uh, says that again in Romans 5, chapter 6 to 12, uh, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? So he shows his love for us while we were still sinners. He died for us. This is old-time gospel. If you've been in the church, you've heard this for a long time, but don't we need to remember sometimes? So while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. I'd like to just place that for us in time. Imagine the most wicked thing you've ever done, the most wicked thought that you've ever had. While you were doing that, Jesus looked at you with full awareness and died on the cross for that. While that person who hurt you was doing that wicked thing to you, Christ looked that person in the eye in the moment of that wickedness and hurt, and he said, I would die for that person. While we were sinners, and not in our nice moments, not in our good moments, not in our heroic moments, in your absolutely worst moment, Jesus loved you enough to die for you. Amen. That's the gospel. That's the love of Jesus. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? 
And it's just two things placed in time here for us to, I'm just going to go a little faster for us to, uh, to put together. We have been reconciled by his death and we are being saved by his life. You see that in the words in blue. Now that we are reconciled by his death, how much more now that we are reconciled child shall we be saved by his life? So there's two stages there, aren't there, in the text. We are reconciled by his death. So our relationship with God is restored because of what he did for us on the cross. That sin uh, that covers us, that shame that covers us is dealt with at the foot of the cross and we're able to have a relationship with God. We are made able to be in his presence. But we are still... uh, have tendency to sin. I still want to rob the bank, right? (laughs) Right? I still want to rob the bank. So we are being, uh, oh man, a typo. We are being saved by his life. I am being saved from typos. Uh, We're reconciled by his death and being saved by his life. So when he died, uh, we are saved from the penalty of sin. And by his resurrection, uh, we become empowered to live out a new life. Uh, with him, right? And so there's two sort of important theological concepts there. One is uh, positional sanctification. So you are positionally saved. That is when you give your life to Jesus, you are saved. You will be saved from uh, hell. You will be saved uh, from from that pain, from that punishment, from that eternal problem that you would have to deal with otherwise. But then you are progressively sanctified afterwards, right? So John Wimber used this illustration. I'm sure somebody probably used it before him to describe it. And if you've been around for a while, you've heard me do this one as well. But uh, how many of you uh, liked running races when you were kids? I don't run races anymore. I don't go very fast. My children are all faster than me now. There's no point, that's for sure. Um, So running races is good. Um, But imagine that you're there and you're at the Olympics. Uh, You're at this big race. The crowds are all watching. They're gathered all around you. Um, You're at the starting line. You know, your feet are in the blocks. You're ready to run the race. Your body is tensed up. You're fired up. You're ready to go. You're ready to run the race. And just before the starter gun goes off, remember the tension in that moment, uh, the judges come and just say, hey, wait a minute, hold, hold, stop the race, stop, stop, hold on, hold on, everybody, hold on a second. We just have something else that we have to take care of here before you run the race. Would you just come over here, please? Come right over to this spot. We've got this podium right here. Uh, we've got the one and the two and the three. Uh, could you just come up on this gold medal stand here? Just stand right here. What I want to do is I want to put the gold medal around your neck, and if we could sing the national anthem for you, we would love to sing that anthem because you have won the race. You have run the race. You are positionally saved. You have got it. You are saved. You have an eternal life ahead of you with God. The anthem resolves. The flag is flying. The crowds are going wild. And now he takes your hand down the podium and walks you over here back to the starting line. Now run the race. That's what the Christian life is about. We're positionally saved. He's got us. He holds us in the palm of our hand, his hand. And now we run the race. We have been reconciled by his death, and we are being uh, saved by his life. And so the question is, where are you on that journey? Some of you are here, and you have not yet been reconciled to Jesus. You have not yet said, hey, I received this incredible gift of salvation 
that you've given for me. I've not accepted Jesus into my heart. I've not admitted that I'm a sinner. I've not confessed my sin to him. I've not recognized that I've hurt others. I, I haven't received this incredible gift. And that's maybe where you are. You need to be reconciled to him because of what he's done for you to receive uh, his gift on the cross. But maybe you're here and you need to not want to rob banks as much as you used to. <laughs> maybe you're here and there's other sin issues. You need, like Charles Wesley, to have a conversion experience an experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit, an experience of being transformed. Maybe you've lived a really good Christian life. Maybe you've been running your race for a long time and doing good, amazing things for God for a long time. Like Charles, you know, Wesley was, was a fully ordained minister who'd been doing it for, for years when he received conversion and studying the Bible for years when he received uh, conversion, an encounter with the Spirit that was transformative for him. Uh, the way that happened for Charles was this. Uh, he was uh, coming back from America, and he'd gotten to know some Moravians, both he and his brother John. And he was in London at the time, and he was going around visiting. And he was, uh, he'd gone to this meeting that his brother had dragged him to that he didn't want to go with, with an, a Moravian man named Peter Bowler. And Peter Bowler was talking with Charles and saying, so let's just talk about all your good works. Let's just talk about all the good things you've done. And, and he's really challenging him and saying, you know, do these good works, have they actually satisfied God? Have they satisfied you? And Charles uh, he describes it, that he shook his head and said no more. Uh, I thought it very uncharitable, saying in my heart, what, are not my endeavors sufficient grounds of hope? Would he rob me of my endeavors? I have nothing else to trust to. So this Moravian was, was challenging his good deeds and saying, hey, are your endeavors enough to save you? Are they enough to transform you? Or are they enough to outweigh the evil that's in your heart? Like, like your good works doing it for you? Charles, and Charles is like, heck yeah. <laughs> right, like I've done a lot of good stuff. I've done amazing things. Like it's all good. I have nothing else than my endeavors to trust to. May 21st. On Pentecost Sunday, he says this, I felt the Spirit of God striving with my spirit. And he describes more about that elsewhere. Um, the Spirit of God striving with his spirit, like his spirit wanting to proclaim his good works before God, his spirit wanting to say that it was okay, his spirit wanting uh, to not need what the Holy Spirit was pouring out for him. The striving strength of his spirit trying to overpower the Spirit of God and God's spirit striving with him. Um, till by degrees he chased away the darkness of my unbelief. And that was Charles's experience. There was not something in him that could actually believe that God could love him and live inside of him and dwell inside of him and want to relate to him without a whole pile of good works. And he knew those weren't sufficient. He was still in a religious place trying to earn relationship with God. And God breaks through that. He chased away the darkness of my unbelief, and I found myself convinced. I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in the hope of loving Christ. He didn't believe before that he could be at peace really with God and found that fear just completely chased away. And so maybe that's where some of us are here. Maybe you're still living in a fear that the grace of God isn't sufficient for you. Maybe you're still here living in a place where um, 
you don't believe that he actually wants to have an authentic, tangible relationship with you. Or maybe you're living in this much relationship with him and there's this much more for you that you, you can't imagine. More of his spirit poured out in your life. Uh, more of intimacy. More of prayer. More of connection. More of loving affliction, affection flowing back and forth between you. Uh, my hope for all of us. And again, this is Pentecost Sunday, another connection with the moving of the Holy Spirit. My hope for all of us, um, I think, is that we would experience the more. That we would experience uh, a fresh conversion. That we would go uh, from enjoying just our positional salvation, our time on the podium, knowing that the end of the race is done, that we would be met in the race and empowered in the race of knowing him better here on earth. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.